As we approach Christmas, this time when we celebrate the coming of God to rescue broken humanity, we reflect on four great themes of Jesus' coming, peace, hope, peace, love and joy. That's the order we're doing it in today, uh, this year rather. Last week Graham looked at hope and this week I'm looking at peace. Perhaps one of the most famous passages pointing towards the peace that Jesus in particular brings is in Micah. Now Micah is a difficult little book. I don't know if you've tried to read it, but it's not an easy read. But let's try to tackle it anyway. Because it turns out that this passage that we're looking at is very beautiful and profound. So let's read it now. Mobilize. Marshal your troops. The the enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with a rod. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, see, I told you it was difficult, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed for he will be highly honored around the world. And he will be the source of peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and break through our defences, we will appoint seven rulers to watch over us, eight princes to lead us. They will rule Assyria with drawn swords and enter the gates of the land of Nimrod. He will rescue us from the Assyrians when they pour over the borders to invade our land. Hmm. To understand this passage, we really need to understand the context. Fortunately, this passage has a very specific context, a well-known event. This first verse is referring to the famous siege of Jerusalem by the armies of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. It occurred in 701 BC. You may remember the story from 2 Kings where it ends with uh, God sending an army of angels to defeat Sennacherib's army. But that's much later in the story than Micah gives in this oracle, this prophecy. Now, over 20 years before, the prophet Isaiah, a contemporary of Micah, had been prophesying the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel and just 20 years before this passage, Isaiah's prophecy had come true. He'd also warned that this justice would be visited on the southern kingdom of Judah and on its capital, Jerusalem. In fact, Micah's own prophecies were very similar to Isaiah's. He too had prophesied against the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, the book of Micah starts with a rather confronting prophecy about both Israel and Judah, Samaria and Jerusalem. In that he said, 
attention, let all the people of the world listen. You can tell Micah's style, he's trying to get your attention. Let the earth and everything in it hear. The sovereign Lord is making accusations against you. The Lord speaks from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming. He leaves his throne in heaven and tramples the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath his feet and flow into the valleys like wax in a fire, like water pouring down a hill. And why is this happening? Because of the rebellion of Israel. Yes, the sins of the whole nation. Who's to blame for Israel's rebellion? Samaria, its capital city. Where's the center of idolatry in Judah? In Jerusalem, its capital. It's pretty clear that Micah's role as prophet was to warn Israel and Judah about the consequences of their rebellion against God. But what what was this rebellion that God was judging? Well, we just need to read on for a few verses to find out. See, Micah's actually not that hard. So, I, the Lord, will make the city of Samaria a heap of ruins. Her streets will be ploughed up for planting vineyards. I will roll the stones of her walls into the valley below, exposing her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed. All her sacred treasures will be burned. These things were bought with the money earned by her prostitution and they will now be carried away to pay prostitutes elsewhere. You see, the people were putting their faith in buildings and idols and treasures. Micah's reference to her prostitution, that's a common biblical metaphor for people valuing false gods, including money, wealth and security, over the true God. That was the problem. If you read through Micah, you'll find that, like Amos, he rails against the rich and the way they exploit the poor. As an example, in Micah 2.2, he says, when you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. So God's nation is filled with greed and injustice. So how then can he bring about peace? First, God must sweep away the wickedness. And so he uses Assyria and its king Sennacherib to sweep away the wicked society that's grown up in Israel and Judah. Indeed, immediately before the prophecy of peace in our passage, Sennacherib's army had been approaching Jerusalem from the southwest, destroying all the towns as you go. That red line there, that's Sennacherib coming up to Jerusalem. And the towns that he destroyed included the town of Bethlehem. If you just go down the red line from Jerusalem a bit, which is the end, you'll see there's a, a crossroads, and that, at that crossroads is Bethlehem. Now, Micah prophesied that Bethlehem was the source of God's redemption, but Sennacherib had just destroyed it. Finally, of course, Sennacherib laid siege to Jerusalem. His army did, with King Hezekiah, the prophet Isaiah, and probably Micah himself trapped inside. 
So that, that's the context for this passage. That's the situation that Micah's in when he gives this prophecy. Now let me tell a story that might explain what God is doing here. Because, to be honest, this sort of thing is a long way outside our modern Australian experience. A few days ago, earlier this week, I took advantage of the wet weather and the moist soil that results to do some gardening. Rare thing, but yep, I did do it. Something that good gardeners know, but which I struggle with, is the idea that gardens need to be dug up regularly. I struggle with this because I look at the plants that seem to be thriving and I don't want to unsettle them. I don't want to kill them. But my approach doesn't work. Leaving them there doesn't work. Why not? Because it leads to this. That's supposed to be a herb garden, but it's actually a weed garden with some herbs in it. The weed, mostly cooch grass, which is a horrible weed, can't be pulled out without pulling out the herbs as well. But the herbs can't flourish and be fruitful unless the weeds are dealt with. What to do? Well, this. This is what to do. I have to dig everything out, leaving bare earth behind. Actually, then I put some compost in there and then replant the herbs that remain, the remnant, and nourish them back to life. And also I can plant new herbs as well. This brutal approach is the only way for herbs to have a peaceful, nurturing environment in which to flourish. Anything less than this will simply result in more weeds and fewer, more stressed herbs. Now the same is true of wicked people and systems, the weeds, and good people, the herbs. With that in mind... Let's continue looking at our passage because, as I said, it's quite profound. So verse 2. Verse 1 talked about um, the situation. Verse 2 is the prophecy. So Micah's prophecy here makes it sound like God will send a ruler from Bethlehem to rescue the people from Assyria right away, doesn't it? You know, Bethlehem, I'm a, a, a ruler will come from you. But from our perspective, 2,700 years later, we know that didn't happen. In fact, when Jesus was born, the Jews were still waiting for this ruler who they now identified as the Messiah. King Herod discovered that this was the case after the wise men sparked his interest and the Jewish scholars quoted this passage to him. We read in Matthew chapter 2, Herod called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judah, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. 
this is a blend of, of verses. So what then does it mean in, the, in verse 3 of Micah 5 when it says that the fellow countrymen will return to their own land? If this prophecy is, is so far down the road, 700 years later, what about this second one about the fellow countrymen returning? By the time of Jesus, the Samaritans were either hopelessly corrupted, right, as the Jews believed. They'd come back to Samaria, but they were a total mess. Or they'd legitimately been in their home for the last however many hundred years. So they didn't need to return. They were already there. So what happened? But they didn't rejoin Judah. There was, there was just no possibility of the northern tribes rejoining with Judah as the unified nation of Israel at this point. So let's see if the rest of the prophecy can help us understand. This is the rest. It seems both the promise of reunification and the promise of peace here turn out to be bigger promises than Micah expected. Micah says, you know, he'll be the source of peace when the Assyrians invade our land. But it's actually quite common for biblical prophecy to have a small immediate context like the Assyrian invasion, but God's actually pointing to a bigger reality. Jonah, for example, fixates on the miraculous plant that shelters him and then dies. But God's pointing to the grace he's showing Nineveh and, in fact, ultimately to the whole world through Jesus. And God promises Abraham more descendants than the stars visible in the sky, but he means descendants via faith as well as via blood. So he extends his promise to the whole world. That's a very common feature of prophecy. In fact, Jesus took all of God's plans and promises for Israel and he extended them to the whole world through himself. He said, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Their purpose was so much bigger than what they thought it was. And Jesus came to make that full. And we Christians have followed in his footsteps in understanding the Old Testament. In fact, thinking about interpreting prophecy made me wonder if we should like, have, a, have a course on <laughs> interpreting Old Testament prophecy, but it would probably get pretty boring pretty quickly. But it, it is complex. So when we read Micah's prophecy, we need to see how God is bringing the lost brothers of Israel and understand that that's actually the Gentiles, the rest of the world, back into unity with him. The lost brothers of Israel is everyone else, not just the ten tribes. In the same way, the promise of peace, which is given here in verse 5, applies to the whole world. Jesus is the source of peace for us all, protecting us from tyrannies like Assyria's, even when they seem to be overwhelming us, breaking down our defences. Jesus' peace protects us. 
In Revelation, at the end of time, we see this applied to the whole world. We see that it says, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. Everyone, the whole world. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they'd done. Sorry, I think I've skipped an explanation. here. Yes, I have. I need to prepare you for that. Now, so we've... We're talking about the whole world. But if God is extending the promise of peace to the whole world, right? then what about this threat of judgment to the whole world? Remember, the context of this peace was judgment. In fact, the way that the passage is written, it seems that peace is only possible in the context of judgment. Just like my garden The herbs can only find peace in the context of judgment on the weeds. And of course, that's exactly what God will do. He will bring judgment on the whole world. And that's what we see in Revelation. The whole world standing before God's throne. The books are opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead. Death and the grave gave up their dead. All were judged according to their deeds. Now, this is universal judgment. What's the result of universal judgment? Well, we go on to Revelation chapter 22. Universal peace. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. It's a kingdom of eternal peace. But of course, we live between these two realities, between the time of Jesus coming to save the world and coming to judge the world and bring eternal peace. We live in a time when God dwells in our hearts, not in the world around us. So how do we experience peace today? Must we wait for Jesus' second coming? Well, praise God that he's given us the possibility of peace today even in the midst of his and our enemies. The key to experiencing peace in our lives is the same as the key to bringing peace to the world. We must ruthlessly dig out the weeds and only then can we replant the herbs. What are the weeds though? Right In Micah, uh, the weeds that... God's judgment needed to dig out was the temptation to rely on the great wealth and the great homes of their capital cities and, of course, the temptation of money itself. Well, guess what? That's our weeds too, right? Think about it. Are Australians obsessed with building their homes and owning their own homes? Is that an Australian obsession? Yep, pretty much. 
They're our refuges, our castles, our protection from the storms of life. There's so much a castle. Yesterday, we were coming home from the market and it was really windy, really blustery. I had a, um, like a hat on, like a broad-brimmed hat, and the wind caught my hat, blew it off my head, straight over a wall into a house. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to get that. And I, the house just had barred fences, like barred gates in the walls. There were no doorbells. There was no gate to go in. And I was banging on the, the, banging on the gate and yelling out, hello, hello. No answer, nothing. Eventually I discovered that one of the gates, I could lift up the, the, um, the things on the bottom and go in and trespass. And as I was going in, I'm yelling out, hello, anyone there? The door's open, nobody's responding. They were in their little castle. They didn't want to see anyone or talk to anyone, so I just got my hat and went. So that was my trespassing for the day. <clears throat> but it's, it, <laughs> that's, what, that's how we treat our houses. They're our place, and this place has no trespassing written on the gates and stuff around it. It's like it's, I don't know. I guess I was lucky I wasn't. No, I won't say that. Um, But tragically, while a home can be a refuge, if we value our home over the God of the universe, we actually become a slave to that house, a slave to our home. We become, and our culture even recognises this, mortgage slaves or DIY drones. I don't know if you've heard that term or if I just made it up, but whatever, it's cool. Or we, we, we have a breakdown. We break down because of the stress of keeping a roof over our family's head or keeping our family under that roof. So if we place God first, though, he does promise that he'll give us all that we need. Jesus said, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over, the other passages say a hundred times over, in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. If we give up our home, Jesus promises us a hundred in its place. What a weird promise. But how many of us have tried claiming this? How many have actually given up our home and then gone, okay, where's my hundred homes? Not many of us. All I know is that if we value our home above God, it will rule over us as a cruel slave master. But if we value God above our home, being prepared to give it up for his sake, then God will care for us. Now, I've previously mentioned a family in Hong Kong who sold their enormous home in America in obedience to God and moved to a tiny rented apartment in the slums of Sham Choi Po. And they actually found themselves freed, even though they were living in this squiddy little place. I think there were uh, seven of them or something. Five kids, I think. They found themselves free. And we can too. We don't have to sell our homes and move to Shamshoi Paul. But 
just as in the case of the rich young ruler. Some people need to make dramatic sacrifices and some people don't. The point is to let go of whatever we find ourselves enslaved by. It's only when the weeds take over that you really need to dig the garden bed out, right? You can just pull a few weeds out. If there's only a few weeds, you can pull them out. When they take over, you've got to do the radical stuff. Which brings us to money. In a wealthy society like Micah and Isaiah's, and of course ours, money becomes a greedy god. It's an insidious weed, money. It's like the cooch grass that grows through my herb garden. It sets its roots deep under the soil, so it's impossible to easily remove it from the garden bed. And it grows tall to choke out the herbs. Money like that, tangles its roots deep into our hearts. And the love of it grows vigorously and smothers all the good in our character. It destroys any hope we have of peace. What we need to ask ourselves, what is our relationship to money? Does it have control over us like it did of Israel and Judah in the 8th century? They were actually really wealthy times and that's why the people became so corrupt because there was easy money. Wages, good wages going up. You know, that's what we want in this country. That's what our government thinks we need. But that's what corrupted Israel. So do we need to dig our love for money out by the roots? Do we need to be like the rich young ruler? Of course, there are other weeds. Addictions to things like gambling or TV or pornography. Laziness. Bitterness. Pride. Impatience. Anger. And so on. These too need to be dug out of our lives if we're to experience peace. Praise God that we don't need to do the work of gardening on our own. We have a helper. This is a wonderful thing. If you've had to look after a garden on your own, you know that helpers are, well, they're wonderful things. Unless they're kids, because then they're not really helpers. No, just joking, Matthew. I'm sure you're a great helper. (laughs) I know I was a terrible helper when I was a kid. But the helper that we have, the Holy Spirit, he works far harder than we do at weeding the garden, at pulling out the things that, that have enslaved us, the weeds that grow up in our souls. So when you hear the Christmas promise of peace to the world and goodwill to all men, remember that it comes, it comes at a cost, a type of cost. And that cost is a judgment on the weeds, including the weeds that grow in our own hearts. Those who yearn for peace, those who yearn for the herbs of life, can actually 
experience peace. So as we look forward to Christmas, I think it's worth looking inside at at the state of our souls and, and perhaps joining the Holy Spirit in a bit of weeding. So, happy gardening and peace be with you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we know that you want to bring us peace. We know that you want to set us free from our enemies, from greed and selfishness and idolatry. And we thank you that your gift of our Lord Jesus is what sets us free. Help us now to join with the Holy Spirit in gardening our souls, tearing out the ugliness that's the opposite of Jesus' selfless love and planting compassion and love and patience and gentleness and and all good things. In Jesus' name, amen.